0: What's one attraction you think everyone should see at least once in their life?
1: Oh, hands down, the world's largest ball of twine. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that is, that's a cultural icon.
2: Yeah, and you have to listen to the song over and over and over again while you're driving there to annoy your children.
0: <laughs> that's yes. part of it. Dad, we want to see the biggest ball of twine
1: in Minnesota. They pick the biggest ball of twine in
0: You're listening to How To. I'm Amanda Ripley. That was Weird Al Yankovic singing about one of our country's most famous roadside attractions. Now, why are we playing this song? Well, the other day, a listener called into the How To hotline with an unusual request. How can our town, he wanted to know, build a truly awesome roadside attraction? One that delights and inspires. One that rivals the largest ball of twine in America. Our listener is from a little town in Delaware called Smyrna, a place you've probably never heard of, which is part of the problem.
2: Smyrna is a small town. We are about 13,000 people, a very agriculturally focused area of our state, but it still has this wonderful little small town charm.
0: That's Mike. He wears many hats in Smyrna. In addition to running a fleet of taco trucks, He owns a craft distillery in an old renovated movie house. He's a member of the town council, and he sits on the county tourism board. So probably fair to say that Smyrna depends on Mike as much as Mike depends on Smyrna, which is why it pains him so much that so few people spend their time and their money in his cute little town.
2: We have the unfortunate um, or fortunate, depending on your perspective sometimes, spot of being in the middle of our state. We have beaches that people travel to in massive numbers throughout the summertime. And unless you need gas, you're not likely to get off the highways. You know, Back when the major toll roads, before those were built, you had to travel through a lot of these little towns, and my town being one of them. But now, you can just bypass us if you want to.
0: But earlier this year, Mike got an idea.
2: So this summer, I wanted to do about a two-week road trip with my kids, and we were going to go up through New England. I had done trips like this with my father when I was a kid, and we would often stop at things on the side of the road. Somebody who built a spaceship, Paul Bunyan and Babe the Big Blue Ox, the dinosaurs out in the, the desert. I wanted to break up the trip and have a little bit of fun. We visited, I think, probably about 10 or 12 of these along the way during our trip. But what I also saw was that my wonderful little state of Delaware was empty on the map. I absolutely love my state and I love my county and my town. And I got to thinking, well, why not? Like, why hasn't somebody gone out and built something like this here?
0: Why not indeed? Why not build something engaging, enticing, simply Smyrna to lure the beachgoers off the interstate? To help Mike figure this out, we found literally the perfect person. My name is Erica Nelson,
1: and I am the owner and operator of a roadside sideshow expo that houses the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things, which are replicas of roadside attractions from across the U.S. that build themselves as some sort of superlative, like the biggest, the largest, the smallest,
0: the longest, the deepest, and uh, just love to talk about them. Erica spent years traveling to see hundreds of roadside attractions, and she's built a bunch of large-scale art installations herself. Now she helps towns like Smyrna who want to build their own roadside attractions. Yes, that is a real job. So on today's show, we're going to discover the magic behind the world's best roadside attractions, and we'll teach Mike how to capture that wonder, and maybe even a few tourist dollars. And don't worry, we will get back to the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things. But to tide you over for now, please enjoy the museum's delightful theme song. Well, traveling down the road.
1: What do I see but a giant ear corn and a bigger strawberry? I'm not hallucinating and I'm not crazy, but this giant talking gal is talking to me. I just says, how have you seen? The world's largest picture? of the world's false version of the world's largest thing's traveling roadside attractions.
0: Erica, can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to roadside attractions in the first place? Growing up... Uh, We lived in a small
1: town, rural Missouri. But in the summers, we would travel to wherever Dad was stationed. He was in the Air Force. So before being able to Google things, when it was just maps and research, I thought my mom was so amazingly brilliant. How did you know that there's Hmm. this giant rift in the continent and you could go look at it? Hmm. So that amazement that came with finding something outside of your experience, Mm -hmm. to me was just magical. And the more that I grew up and started driving myself around, I realized other people didn't navigate that way. They didn't navigate by senses of wonder. So I kept wanting to find that again.
0: I love that idea of navigating by wonder.
1: And that's, I think, what attraction builders want to build, too. It could be thought of as... A commercial venture, but at the heart of it, at the core of it, the thing that makes people stop is that acknowledgement of an authentic feeling that is so hard to pin down.
0: Yeah, it's almost like in a way, in modern life, we need these little surprises and quirks and delights more than ever. We live in a globalized world where, you know, you lose that sense of place and the personality of a place. Is this like an American thing, or do all countries have roadside attractions at this level?
1: I think it's a young country thing. So Canada Mm. and Australia both have a large amount of big things, and they Mm. celebrate them. And I think part of that, too, is the road trip culture that we have is also so new. We don't have the historical spots to go to that... A place with buildings from the 1400s or 200s does so. We sort of create these monuments as a community experience in a younger country that has not the amount
0: of history that uh, that the rest of the world does. Right, right. You don't have a medieval cathedral, right? So maybe you know you can have like a a giant nickel.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also ego based. I mean, Americans are giant, flamboyant, loud mm. people, so we. Build
0: giant, room. flamboyant, loud things. Even before the Statue of Liberty arrived in America, there were roadside attractions. The oldest one still standing is Lucy, a six-story high wooden elephant on the Jersey Shore. Lucy was built in 1881, and even back then, she was seen as a whimsical way to bring tourists into town. Then the popularity of roadside attractions really soared with the rise of the automobile and the interstate highway system. Think of Dinosaur Gardens in Michigan, or the Corn Palace in South Dakota, and of course, the Clown Motel in the Nevada desert. I mean, there are thousands of these things, most of which you've never heard of, which is why we're trying to figure out what separates the mildly interesting attraction from the truly spectacular.
2: Part of my question was really not just how do you build, you know, the world's largest garden gnome, um, but how do you also make it something that people want to stop and
0: see? Right, how do you make it a thing, Mm -hmm. right? Not just a weird eccentric oddity.
1: Not just an object, but an event.
0: Like you
1: you know from the parking lot onwards that this (laughs) is going to provide some photo ops, provide some food that you wouldn't normally otherwise get, like fudge. And that memory, so
0: what goes beyond the object into memory? The attractions that go beyond object into memory usually have a deep sense of place, Erica says. We just couldn't really imagine them existing anywhere else but where they are. Well, and you're
1: also placed really well in being in a smaller rural community because it does mean you have more flexibility. There's often fewer regulations And if you ignite that spark within enough of the movers and shakers in a small town, it is so much more likely to happen with that mutual support system that's built into these communities.
2: I think that very much resonates with the conversations that I've had. You know, that idea of what is the most Smyrna thing you can do or something like that. From my business, my distillery, when we were getting ready to start, we said, what is the most Delaware product we could make? And we actually make a Scrapple flavored vodka, because it is the most <laughs> Delaware thing That's we could think awesome. of. Awesome. That sounds
1: simultaneously <laughs> wonderful and awesome.
2: <laughs> yep. And, and so I, I get that authenticity. I think that that is something that really speaks to making it fit in the community. The tricky thing on my mind is that I've seen lots of things die, great ideas uh, die because of death by committee, right? You bring so many people Mm -hmm. in to try and Mm -hmm. find something that you'd never get to define it and eventually folks just sort of walk away. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, Mm -hmm. it could also be a trial period. Like what would happen if every year somebody else said, this is the most Smyrna thing I can think of. And you tried it that year at a festival. What if it ends up being like a downtown sculpture competition, but the most Smyrna sculpture that you can do in front of your business or your storefront that's up for a year? It'd be so much more interesting than the fiberglass plunk art that happens in so many towns that have a committee decide the fiberglass thing and everybody just gets to paint it. And if that happened for five to 10 years, which sounds like a long time on this side of it. But when you look back backwards, five years isn't much. 10 years isn't much. But that'd be a way to sort of crowdsource the wonder and see
0: which ones really fly. If our first rule is to be authentic to your place, then crowdsourcing a point of town pride is our next suggestion. Not only is it a community building exercise to help people get on board, It's also a really good way to test drive ideas.
2: I like that. I totally agree with the not wanting to be the homogenous sort of plunk art, um, as you referred to it, of, you know, yeah, you just, everybody paints a, a cow or something. One of the other things that I considered when thinking about this is It seems like there's a little bit of controversy might be a good thing about a roadside attraction versus trying to find something that everyone agrees with.
1: And nobody's ever going to agree, but this could be a way to start civil conversation again. So it could do the same amount of community building as that final
0: thing could be. What are some of the biggest mistakes people or towns make when trying to do this? I think sometimes people
1: don't go big enough. Like in Nederland, Colorado, they have a festival called Frozen Dead Guy Days because a man cryogenically froze himself and somebody in Niederland thought, hey, this is really bizarre and unique, so let's have a festival called Frozen Dead Guy Days. <laughs> and so now they do it annually, but if it had just been a whisper of an idea, if there hadn't been somebody who goes, yes, this is <laughs> amazing and bizarre and we should celebrate it, in a big way, then it just kind of peters
0: out. Hmm. Okay. So we've got two rules at least so far. One is be authentic to your place. Um, and the next sounds like it's, you know, go big or go home. Yeah. And and, like commit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because
1: And there are going to always be the naysayers. And I think we're so afraid of being rejected by our own town or rejected by somebody saying, oh, well, that's silly or that's ridiculous. There's, mm. Those are always going to be out there. So if you decide up front that, I don't care, I know this is awesome, and you go for it, <laughs> you can embrace all the people who aren't going to like it up front and go, hey, you know what? This isn't your cup of tea. You you don't want a Scrapple-flavored vodka? I get you. This isn't for you. This is for all the other people out there who are
0: wanting to try it. Yeah, I feel like, Mike, can, Mike you can do this, right? I mean, I'm sure there are people who didn't think scrapple vodka was a good idea. You did it anyway.
2: Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think it was... All of us didn 't think it was a good idea <laughs> and, and and it was the world around us who told us differently, so uh, the opportunity to be wrong um, and happy about it is was uh, a nice thing to have <laughs> but I really like the idea of that go big or go home sort of approach to it because the um, as some of the things that we have that i 've seen along the way and like the, the things that we stopped at um, They were interesting ideas, but it just seemed like it could be so much more. But it seems like being open to those ideas is really important. Um, Imagining that it could be way bigger than what it is. And you sort of swing for the fences right off the bat.
1: Yeah. And if you eliminate the, well, that's not going to work because if you just take that out of the equation... And even within yourself, force the brainstorming to be positive of what would be the
0: craziest end to this idea and seeing where you fall within that. If there were no constraints and money were not an object and you could not fail, (laughs) what would it be? Does anything come to mind?
2: So one of the oddest things, our community has a long history of trapping and Smyrna is or was known as a place where people would go to get muskrats and um, eating muskrat is an old tradition around here Uh, not something that I've partaken of but there used to be restaurants in our town that served it they kind of remember (laughs) it as something that you had to do rather than something that you wanted to do
1: yeah Um, but you've got muskrat love right there
2: muskrat love Yeah, <laughs> the song's already written, I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: That's, oh, there, there's so many fun things you could do with that. I mean, what if there is a muskrat parade? What if it takes the community coming together to build the parts and pieces and see how this muskrat comes together? Oh, there's so many great things.
2: That's true. It it does give that opportunity to connect the past to the present. I think, and it doesn't mean that everyone has to go out and eat muskrats. The other idea, many years ago, there was a thing called the Runamuck Festival here in Smyrna. And Runamuck uh, was pig races. Like, They would hold pig races in the downtown. But they made it a little bit of a cultural, like a day out in the community. And they would actually have a lot of like the politicians dress up in basically women's clothes and these were typically men at the time obviously typically women's clothes but also wear like pig noses and pigtails and that they also had to have a race um as well along with the racing pigs um <laughs> and so people remember that and talk about that as like you know the the most fun thing you did in the summertime in smyrna was you go downtown for uh, run amok <laughs>
0: OK, so besides the muskrat and the run there's one more option, one that's already kind of a weird inside joke in Smyrna.
2: Somebody came up with this joke on Facebook, what they call the Duck Creek Ferry.
0: This is a boat that allegedly runs in the shallow creek in town, and the most important thing to know about the Duck Creek Ferry, it doesn't actually exist.
2: I have a t-shirt that says Duck Creek's Ferry huh. Staff that somebody was selling on Facebook. Um, somebody put a sign out uh, for 4th of July. It said like, you know, 4th of July ferry rides with an arrow. And it just points into down a road where there's nothing. Um, huh. And it has been quite entertaining in that folks, you know, will respond to a totally legitimate and honest question asked in the, like, the community group with the Duck Creek Ferry. Okay. Like, like yeah, somebody's looking for, you know, a restaurant recommendation or a dentist and uh-huh. somebody follows up with <laughs> like, oh yeah, no, I get my teeth done on the Duck Creek Ferry, you know, like, <laughs> you know, the true origins of it, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I've, I've met some of the people who have really embraced it. And then I've come across people who, it absolutely infuriates. Um,
0: <laughs> Which is that crackle that you're talking about, right? Like a little conflict might be okay. A few zany ideas, but does Smyrna have to build the world's largest muskrat for people to care? How much does a world record actually matter? We'll find out right after the break. If you rely on how-to to help you with your zany ideas, the best way to support this show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members never hear another ad on our podcast or any other Slate podcast. How great is that? You also get free and total access to Slate's website. So I hope you'll join if you can. To sign up now, go to slate.com slash how-to plus. Again, that's slate.com slash how-to plus. Thanks. We're back with our listener, Mike, and our roadside attraction aficionado, Erica Nelson. Now, you might be wondering, how did Erica ever begin creating the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things? Well, for Erica, it all began in grad school, when she started taking little road trips to wacky places just to find an escape. At a certain point, I
1: was at a decision-making juncture, where I could either sign a tenure-track teaching position, which is what I was supposed to be building for, or I could sell everything I own and move into a bus full-time. So I did the second one instead of
0: the first. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Good for you. That's awesome. And
1: because I've always figured you can always sign another piece of paper, but how often can you... Follow the dream that um, when you're older, it might be harder to travel or you might know more and realize that's a really bad set of decisions.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know too much. Yeah. So for two years straight, she lived in her converted bus and traveled to as many roadside attractions as possible. Eventually, she landed in Lucas, Kansas, a tiny town of 400 people where art is at the heart of the town. This is the longest I've lived
1: anywhere, but I could Hmm. purchase the house right next to a roadside attraction that was built uh, between 1907 and 1932. And it's this bizarre, amazing three-story sculptural set of uh, politics at the turn of the last century called the Garden of Eden.
0: When someone like Erica says that something is bizarre and amazing, you got to listen. The Garden of Eden is a folk art fun house with Dozens of sculptures, and even a glass-covered coffin holding the artist and his wife. If you're ever passing through Kansas on I-70, it's definitely worth a pit stop. And this turned out to be the perfect neighbor for Erica's own growing collection of oddities. And as I saw more and more world's largest,
1: I started thinking, oh, this would be kind of funny if I just started making world's smallest of the world's largest. And then suddenly you have a collection and then Mm -hmm. it just made sense to compound it into the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the
0: world's largest things. When you spoke to the Wall Street Journal a while ago, I believe you said, no one expects anything out of Kansas. So that gives you a permission slip to do whatever the hell you want. Yeah.
1: And that is also the glory of these small towns, which I was kind of referring to earlier. You can fully work through an idea and then spring it on people. And they're like, how did that happen? Well, it took us five years and you just weren't paying attention. So, (laughs) pa-pow!
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess, Mike, is it fair to say, like, people don't expect a ton out of Delaware? So that gives you a permission slip to do whatever the hell you want? Is that right?
2: Yeah, I I think it actually is, um, right? Being underestimated is kind of an opportunity.
0: Erica, can you think of any example of another town like Smyrna that was sort of casting about for a roadside attraction idea and then hit upon a good one?
1: Uh, One of my favorite sets of stories is from Washington State, where there were a couple of world's largest things that kind of came together. One community, Long Beach, is known for gooey ducks, which are some pretty awful looking, um, sea creatures that, uh, taste good. So in their annual clam festival, it's a type of clam, they created this giant frying pan for their gooey duck festival. But before the festival, they would have all of the clam queens ride in the giant pan down the main street. So that, to me, is pretty amazing. But it gets even better when they went to a neighboring town that was famed for chickens. And they decided to make a a giant egg, which isn't super spectacular on its own right. But at one point, the giant pan came to the town with the giant egg. And it was still an operating pan. So they got the egg queen from the egg town jumped in the pan with slabs of bacon strapped to her feet and skated around the pan to grease it no. to make the world's largest omelet in the world's <laughs> oh largest God. pan at the site of the world's largest egg. Whoa. So all of these components by themselves are pretty neat, but it's the story that compounds in the region that I think has the super potential to the gestalt of making the whole so much greater than its parts, because they're crazy stories that you can't make up, which wouldn't have happened with just the egg, or wouldn't have happened with just the pan, but took that magic Hmm. of bacon feet to tie it all together.
0: (laughs) All this talk of the world's largest omelet raises the big question. Should towns try to set a Guinness World Record with their attraction? That is something to consider...
1: As you're building these, for a Guinness certification, it has to be really specific. So if you're building a giant cuckoo clock, it has to be built out of the same materials and function in the same way as a normal-sized cuckoo clock, which for roadside attractions isn't always practical. Uh, But there is a town, Casey, Illinois, who has navigated this really well. They decided to be a small town with big things, so they didn't land on one idea, they just create a series of large things. And some of them are Guinness certified, and some of them aren't. But they still embrace both of them. So I don't think that's a driving force anymore.
2: And, and I'm trying to think of how you would make the world's largest muskrat out of muskrats. It doesn't seem
1: very <laughs> humane. <laughs> yeah, for that one, it would have to be a live trapped muskrat that is the largest. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> a title that would be also very easy to lose. Mm-hmm.
0: I wonder, like, as a practical matter, is it hard to find the artisans, the craftsmen, the, the builders of these very large things? Not so much anymore. So that is the glory of
1: social media is that there is a network of if it ends up being fiberglass, there is a team that very actively puts up and takes down fiberglass forms.
2: We actually have a very large metal fabrication community around here. Hmm. Um, Why it exists in this area, I'm not sure. But um, there are a number of large metal fabricators. um, And what that means is skilled artisans um, who Hmm. are doing this metal fabrication work. Uh, And they're all right here. So I often go towards that side of, well, you know, like, could you make the biggest steel steel? Well, whatever it is, because...
0: The world's largest metal muskrat, obviously.
2: Yeah, right.
0: (laughs) Is it right to say that these attractions really boomed in the sort of glory days of the automobile? And so that's that's kind of how we got here?
1: I think for a lot of them, but there's also those lone eccentrics out there who see maybe the pride in their town flagging and Mm. want to do something to pull the community together so there Hmm. are ones that are being made today. Uh, The world's largest Czechoslovakian hand-painted egg is just 14 miles south of me in Wilson. (laughs) And that was an idea that came out of a Chamber of Commerce dinner that was talking about, oh, we don't have that community pride anymore. Hmm. What would it take? And they had me as a guest speaker. And it was one of those sort of just, hey, what would happen if? And a couple of years later, they put up a billboard before they put up the egg saying, coming soon, world's largest <laughs> check egg. And then on the day of its arrival, a regional fiberglass manufacturer created it and delivered it to downtown and swung it over the intersection to have its, its place where it would be painted. And it mm. became this whole reminder to the town that, yes, this is cool.
0: Yes, this is awesome. Hmm. <laughs> That's great, and I'm looking at a picture of it. It's quite attractive, actually,
1: yeah, it's really well done, yeah, and huge. It really hmm. was this community on the brink of do we keep going or hmm. do we say all right, that's it, and they hmm.
0: chose to keep going it's awesome so so it's not like all roadside attractions happened fifty years ago or a hundred years ago that they're they're still vibrant, there's new ones happening, and I think probably one coming soon mm-hmm. to Smyrna, Delaware. <laughs>
2: No, I, I think I'm more encouraged. I, I really like the little pieces of of sort of maybe a couple of the rules that you talked about, Erica. I also really like some of the idea that you don't have to chase like the Guinness piece um, and that idea of authenticity. Those, I think, are things that really resonate very well with me because I I like the idea of irreverence. And part of me was afraid that I was going to hear from you, like, oh, yeah, you know, always take whatever it is, the, the whatever was the biggest industry in your town, and that's the thing that's going to work. Um, and I'm glad that wasn't the answer.
1: Yeah, because there are other towns that had that industry, too. So it's mm-hmm. really
0: diving down to the superlative that might not be the biggest. Yeah. The superlative that might not be the biggest. So there's something that's sort of the essence. Like, basically, yeah. you have to distill Smyrna, it sounds like.
1: (laughs) And it sounds like Mike is perfectly primed to do this. Yes, nobody else.
2: There you go. (laughs) The right man for the job.
0: Thank you to Mike for including us in this brainstorming project. We can't wait to visit Smyrna and try the Scrapple vodka. Perhaps in the shadow of the world's largest metal muskrat? And a big thank you to Erica for all of her wonderful insights. We'll link to her website, and we're definitely putting Lucas, Kansas on our next road trip itinerary. And what about the rest of you? What's your favorite roadside attraction? Give us a call and let us know at 646-495-4001, or send us a note at at slate.com. That's also where you can always reach us when you need help with anything. Building, say, a bigger ball of twine or, I don't know, inventing an alarming flavor of vodka. Whatever it is, we'd love to hear from you. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson and Kevin Bendis produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. I'm Amanda Ripley. Thanks for listening.